Clubhouse. Well, today we've got the read-through of the first three episodes of next year, so that's rather uh, exciting, really. on New Money Old Rules, the Gilded Age podcast is series creator, writer, and executive producer, Lord Juliet Fellows, and joining us also, series co-writer and co-executive producer, Sonia Warfield. Juliet and Sonia, thank you so much for coming and speaking with us today, uh, especially with the finale now behind us. Yeah, we're delighted. It was a big journey for the Gilded Age. Well, we're very pleased to be here. One thing we focus on the show is that it was a show about change. It's picking up in a very particular time in America, in New York, really the world. The episode with Edison lighting up the Times building, very much about this is a changing world and which side are you going to be on. With the finale finishing, what do you hope viewers take away from watching this snippet of time of change in America? Well, I mean, I'm always a little bit wary of telling you what the viewers should take away. They must take away what they like. But it was a period of change. I mean, I am always interested in periods of change. To some extent, all periods are periods of change. But there are some where the change is greater and more noticeable than others. And you've got this extraordinary period in American history after the Civil War, when they had sort of started to lick their wounds and recover and rebuild, where they really constructed a new America, something that was powerful, bright, incredibly vigorous, this extraordinary economy. I mean, the whole of Europe was beginning its slide into the end of aristocratic rule after however many centuries and to uncharted territory. But America wasn't in decline at all. It was on what is now known as the up and up. And this period of the Gilded Age was really a precursor to the fact that in the coming century, which was only 30 years off, they were going to dominate world affairs, world events for the next 100 years. And so I think it has a dynamism that I hope is transmitted to our viewers. But I mean, mainly, the thing I always hope about any of these shows I write is that the viewers go to their Wikipedia and look up Edison and look up this and look up that and check them out and see if this really happened. I like to feel that I'm helping people to become interested in their own history, but also any history, that the extraordinary ordinary fact that our past led to our present. Sonia, how about for you as one of the creatives and the, and the storytellers in the show, putting it out into the world, what are you hoping people take away from it? Much the same as Julian. And we did achieve that with the Edison Lights episode. Peggy and Fortune mentioned Lewis Latimer. And I saw online on Instagram and on Twitter that viewers actually looked up who Lewis Latimer was and made discoveries about a true historical event that Lewis Latimer created the filament that helped Edison's lights last longer. And so that's, you know, history that unfortunately is not taught, probably because Lewis Latimer was a black man. It's powerful that we learn more about how all of these things came together in this amazing monumental time, really, in America. 
Sonia, I'm so glad you brought up the historical aspect with the Black experience. We run a Facebook group for the Gilded Age as well. And we've had some pushback, like fact check. You know, I don't really know if there were Black pharmacists. And like so, and we were like, wait, like you need to do your research. You know, you need to find out more about what was going on during this time. So when we were talking about it, was there research for you guys that you were doing where you were like shocked? Like, I can't believe that this is what was going on. There was surprising research. What I loved about this world that Julian created was that he obviously did his own research, but he included stories about the Black experience that we hardly ever see on film or television for that time period. Usually when we see the depictions of Black people on screen so soon after the Civil War, it's in relation to enslavement. But the truth of the matter is, is that there was a Black middle class, Black men were in Congress, HBCUs were beginning, so they were graduating Black doctors, and that all really did exist. But because history comes from a point of view, right? So who, let's look at who's writing the history books. Are they people of color? Are they women? No. So they're not necessarily going to include those stories. But Julian just, you know, did a brilliant job in including them and in researching and putting them on screen so that people can say, oh my gosh, I had no idea. And it it is true. You guys are all in though. You do a Facebook group too. We do. We do. We do. We we were given the white glove treatment. You know, it's funny, uh, you know, when uh, Thomas Fortune was introduced in the show, I went looking. One of the things I like about the show is the historical. I'm a history buff. I love the historical aspect to it. And I was shocked at how little I could find about him and the New York Globe. And this was a prominent Black newspaper of the time. And there's other than its Wikipedia page, there's not a ton out there about it. But it was important. It's clearly important. And so, yeah, I, I wish more people were watching the show just for this point of it, just seeing the historical aspect of it that you guys are bringing to light and telling that story. Well, there, there is a whole book. I actually usually have it right by my desk where I'd show it to you, <laughs> but but on, on Thomas Fortune that I read. And we have an amazing historian who is our co-executive producer, Dr. Erica Dunbar. And so she uh, unveils and enlightens us on a lot of stories. But I, you know, growing up, my parents subscribe to the Black press in Cleveland. And so I knew that a Black press existed. And that's something that I really loved about what Julian wrote. And so I wanted to have that world and show that world on television. So you mentioned about writing for the strong female characters. Again, I feel like everyone thought they were just relegated to being just, just, just moms, right? Um, and uh, I love that they're so strong and they're so, um, they have their own point of view and they have their agendas beyond agendas, right? So for Peggy in particular, who I'm in love with, I say the whole time when we're on the podcast, I'm like, if I'm on a desert island, I want Peggy there because she's imaginative and creative. Like she's always, she's going to have something to say. I'm not going to be bored. You know, (laughs) (laughs) she's going to talk to me about stuff. So for both of you guys, what is it like to write these strong female characters who are back in the 1880s, now in 2022? There's, it's a different feel, but we still kind of have a, a, a rough go when it comes to writing strong characters for females. We didn't invent strong women. I mean, we didn't. We weren't the first generation of women with ambition. We weren't the first generation of intelligent women. You know, now, to hear it told, you would think that there had been no ambitious women before the 1980s. Ambitious women go back before history. The difference is, 
in different societies, they have to find different outlets for their ambition and their intelligence. They have to find areas that they can dominate, have an influence in, and so on. You know, in many ways, putting intelligent women in a period drama uh, is rather rewarding because you have to see them overcoming the barriers of the society in which they're operating. But, you know, right back in medieval history, you see queens influencing their husband and, you know, the people rising up against this, that and the other. I think it's a false take on history. Agendas. Beyond in the background, cooking and gnashing their teeth. That isn't how it was, you know. And in society particularly, this was an area that was dominated by women in all countries. I've never come across a country where high society was run by men. They were always powerless compared to the women. So all we're doing is sort of showing that is making it clear that if you were a strong woman living in the 1880s, there were still things to do. Even if you couldn't run ICI or be head of an advertising company, there was still plenty of stuff to do. And that's what I hope we have our spotlight on. You know, I always think that Bertha would, if Bertha were alive today, she would be running Apple. She would be a Sheryl Sandberg, but instead she's her ambition is... Um, is in society. With Peggy, because she is able to have a job, you know, unlike Marion, Agnes obviously doesn't want her to work. But there were Black women writers at that time. And what's so great is that I got to go back and our historian would pull their articles. And so I got to read them. You know, Ida B. Wells was, was of that time as well. And so Peggy is able to pursue her dream and her passion, which is quite wonderful. I love you bring up Ida B. Wells. I had been teaching uh, my son about her before the series started. And when Peggy was going, I was like, I think she's Ida B. Wells. I was like, I love this. (laughs) I was like, this is amazing. Yeah, it was very, very cool. I love it. I know there is this syndrome when you write for television characters that they're your children and it's hard to pick a favorite. But I'm going to ask you, is there a favorite voice, at least, if not a character, that you like to write for the best or comes the most natural? Is there a relationship you like to write for the best or see play out? Um, well, I'm afraid, as you know, to quote yourself, they are all my children. There are children and we love them all. And, you know, some of them are funnier than others. And so it's good fun to write for Agnes and Ada because their scenes make me smile. But on the other hand, I like very much George and Bertha's marriage and their kind of deal and the fact that they have each other's back and they, you know, they may not be terribly desirable as characters in many ways. I mean, he's very ruthless and and has an over-concern with promoting his own interests and acquiring money. She has too great an interest in social prominence because it's her only outlet. So all of that you can say. But the fact is, they have a marriage which is interesting to look at and I think rewarding to live. And so that's rather good fun to be part of. But I, I also like, I mean, one of the great differences 
between the servants of the Gilded Age and the ones of Downton is, you know, in Downton, the local people, the farmers' daughters, the local shopkeepers, sons, whatever, went into service and they served for 40 years and then eventually they got a cottage on the estate and everyone loved them. But it wasn't very dynamic. Whereas for a lot of servants of Americans at that time, these were immigrants who had arrived in America to make their fortunes. They were on a different path. Now, they may not make that path and they may settle as lots of human beings have to settle before then or up to the present day. But it doesn't mean they didn't have I suspect, rather bigger dreams when they got off the boat. And a lot of them fulfilled those dreams. And I think it gives them a sort of dynamic that being a housemaid in England at that time probably didn't have. You have that great moment in this episode, in episode nine, with Jack and Bridget. They're watching the arrivals across the street. And Jack says, do you think we'll ever be there? You know, and they had that great comment, it's America, you never know. I couldn't imagine, like, Carson having that conversation in Downton Abbey that he'd think he would be upstairs one day. Yeah, Carson knew yeah, he, he knew. would never be up there as anything other than a long-serving servant. Yes, and, and, and he was and okay it with was it. different in America. Yeah. America was there. I mean, that way of life, the Downton way of life, had a kind of security that was enough for some people. But the American life had possibilities that were quite simply not there in Europe at that time. That seems to me exciting and full of potential. Sonia, do you have a favorite child that you're willing to admit to, <laughs> to, to, to write for and to hear the words? I do, and it's Agnes. <laughs> I will admit to that. I love her. Now, how much of that is because the words are funny or Miss Baranski's delivery is just, I mean, she, she's, she's almost born to play that role of Agnes with her, <laughs> with her sharp tongue. For me, it's both, but Agnes, Agnes's character kind of reminds me of my mother. <laughs> and so it's sort of easy for me to grasp those bomos, bomos, I guess, yeah. You're always dependent on the actors. Yeah. And the fact is, your first job when you're making a show is to get the best possible cast. Because one of the pluses for the writers of that is that they make your lines sound better than they were when you wrote them. <laughs> and that's our plus with this whole cast. I think they're very, very talented. And as a result, Sonia and I have been well served. Let's talk about casting, because as a series creator, how involved were you with the casting? Were there certain voices, this Agnes is a Baranski type or anything like that? Did you have anything like that in mind when you were writing? Well, I wanted Christine Baranski from the day one. So it was a very happy day for me when she was signed. I'd been part of her fan club for years because I first saw her playing a real friend of mine, Andrea Reynolds, in Reversal of Fortune with Jeremy Irons. And I knew Andrea Reynolds very well. She was one of my great champions when I was starting out. And so, of course, I noticed Christine, who actually gave a very strong performance in that film. But then I followed her on into The Good Wife, and I followed her from that into The Good Fight. So I'm a complete Baranskyite by the this stage. And, uh, and I was very happy when she came aboard. But I mean, I'm happy with all of them. I think in Bernie Telsey, who's company, Adam Caldwell, who, who are casting it for us, we have a very, very talented team. And quite honestly, when they show us 
three films of people to play this part or that part. And we have these, you know, those sort of extracts you can watch and they're real and so on. Actually, every time any of them could play it. I mean, I've never been so spoiled for being given actors who are perfect for the part. I mean, I think we're very, very lucky. We often say that the costuming and the hair and all the extras are characters unto themselves, but like George's beard, hello, like it's like a, it's like it's it's, a, it's its own character. Like when he comes on to, I'm like, I love, I love that beard. Yes. I love that beard. <laughs> it has its own trailer. I feel like it's <laughs> well, the beard is real. Julian, just don't even. <laughs> The, the beard is glorious. As a beard wearer, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of this beard. Uh, how much about the costumes and the nonverbal cues of the show start with you? Are, are you, when you're writing, are you writing in ideas or, you know, like the ball, for instance? So much of that ball and the ending scene of the twirling and the dancing, that's all nonverbal, but it's conveying such a message and a feeling are you writing those notes into there or is that more collaborative with your other set production designers and, and directors? No, I think that's more collaborative because I think one of the jobs at the beginning of a show is that everyone talks to each other as much as possible to make quite clear that we're all trying to make the same show which is something you need to establish early on. And certainly our designers, Bob and Katya and so on, wanted to talk through all the characters. Who were they? What did they want? Were they funny? Were they clever? Were they this and this and this? And I mean, Katya came up with this idea that, for instance, Agnes and Ada, although they dress very well, they dress slightly with a flavour of the 1870s, whereas Bertha Russell dresses absolutely absolutely cutting edge, 1882. I mean, the last stitches were put in after the turn of the year. There's a slight difference in their outline, which I appreciate and I love. And that was an inspiration of Cashel to do that. Bob, you know, is the same. He wants an exact, precise understanding of what these people want in their lives and who they are. When he was constructing the Russell House, which is largely built, but there are two real rooms in it. One is the billiard room and the other is the ballroom, which are both in the Van Cornelius Vanderbilt House in Newport and the Breakers. So he takes details from rooms at the breakers and brings them through into the build. So the columns in the ballroom are similar to the columns in the dining room and all the rest of it. So it all becomes one house. I mean, this is a level of craftsmanship and ability that really is wonderful to find in our own day and age. I think it's all collaborative. And, and I think one of the jobs of making a series or a movie or a show or anything else, really, for that matter, is that you get out of people's way and let them do what they do well. Absolutely. It's all remarkable. So the name of our podcast is New Money, Old Rules. So we're going to ask you real quick, are you guys team at New Money or team Old Rules? I think I'm old rules, believe it or not. <laughs> Is that because of the predictability of the status quo or? New money can be a little gauche sometimes. <laughs> mm. True. Very true. Um, true. I mean, I think Agnes knows what she's doing. 
I mean, I really believe in the mixture, but I've certainly grown up to a certain extent with old rules. But I like the energy of new money and new people. I like the dynamic. I like the fact that they come in and shake the society up and give it a kind of rebirth. On the whole, I think everyone benefits from that, even the old money and the old rules, from having a sort of reinvention every so often so it doesn't get too stuffy and stuck in its ways. So I suppose I'm slightly nearer new money than Sonia. <laughs> uh, I know we're just about out of time. Uh, just wrapping up the season and again, ends with that, that ball, and you have that fantastic interaction between Bertha and Mrs. Astor. As the writers who had been building towards it, yes, I, the Alva Vanderbilt comparison, it almost felt inevitable that Mrs. Astor was going to wind up in that ballroom. But as the writers, was it cathartic to you to write that interaction to finally bring them together after teasing us for so long? <laughs> Well, listen, we want Bertha to win. I'm rooting for Bertha, right? Team Bertha. And, I love it. Not yeah. everyone is. They should be, but they're not. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> so, so I wanted Bertha to have that triumphant moment. How about you, Julian? Cathartic as a writer to finally bring those two titans together? Well, it's always, you know, very rewarding if it, when it happens and it works. I hope it has worked. And that's terrific. But I also think to remember Mrs. Astor for a moment, one thing that marks Mrs. Astor apart from many of her kind was she knew things had to change. And she did show up in Alva's ballroom. And she did accept new people, not all of them, not all of the time, but the fundamental shift in society that had to allow new people in, she accepted. And I admire her for that. She wasn't just an old stick in the mud trying to block the door. She knew that change was coming and that the new century would be different. And all of those things, I think, make her, in her rather stodgy way, quite an admirable figure. In a sense, all of that comes together. But I mean, like Sonia, I want Bertha to win. Uh, <laughs> I think she's put up a good struggle and she's deserved it. So I'm happy for her to have her moment of triumph. Any couple that can take down a craft bazaar, that's amazing. <laughs> it's, it's a true flex to hand out $100 bills at a craft bazaar. Like, I'll take all your handkerchiefs. That's it. I love it. Oh, my God. So good. Julian, Sonia, thank you guys so much for joining us. We hope to have you back for season two. Julian, perhaps we can have you back on to talk about that. Now be a new era. It's coming out in a couple of months. We'd love to have you back on to talk about that. <laughs> thank well, you guys so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.